He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. Happy 4th of July weekend to all 247th birthday of our country. We have a great show for you today. On the show, is there going to be nuclear power in the future to help America run its industries, run the country? Paul Stein, chairman of Rolls-Royce Nuclear Power Division, SMR, is going to be talking to us. We have Congressman Jim Comer to give us a few tidbits. The lawyer for the whistleblowers in Washington. That'll be interesting. Dr. Peter Michalos, how are we going to live longer? And we are going to be starting off with Mike Pompeo. What's going on in the world? The former CIA director and secretary of state. He was number one. One in his class at West Point. So who is better to talk to about what's going on in the world than him? Well, Mr. Secretary, nobody really understands what's really going on in Russia, Ukraine, what's going on with the Wagner Group. Where where should we begin? So, John, it's great to be with you again. You know, I've heard lots of people pontificate, say they think they know what's really going on inside of Russia. I would just urge us all to watch and be cautious about what we really know both took place and what is what's going to take place in the future in Russia. It's it's pretty opaque and lots of people telling stories and they are classic propaganda. So I'd start there. But here's a couple of things we do know for sure. I've heard people say this was a giant false flag operation. I can't imagine that. The, the risk to Vladimir Putin's reputation real or perceived, is just too great. You wouldn't do this kind of thing. And by the way, very hard to keep something like this as quiet as they did for as long as they did with the hundreds of people who surely would have had to have known if they were going to conduct a, a giant pure propaganda operation. So I think Prigozhin was serious. I think he was trying to convince Vladimir Putin that he is the answer, not the problem. I think Putin has been being told by his senior military leaders, General Grasimov and Minister of Defense Shoigu, that Prigozhin was getting too big for his britches, to use the colloquial term. Uh, and I think they're beginning to push back on him and constrain him. And he didn't like that. Uh, remember, he owns a global private mercenary operation in Libya, Syria, in the Central African Republic. I mean, this is a, Prigozhin's not some small bit player in this docudrama. Uh, and so we should, we should all be aware that Prigozhin was trying to figure out how to get leverage over them, maybe not to overthrow Putin. It's hard to know. But that Putin will see this as something that is just a bridge too far. And much, much like Xi Jinping went after the leaders of commercial enterprises that had gotten out too far, he felt like threatened his power. I'm confident Putin began to see that Prigozhin was threatening his, and he will clamp down on all of this. No one individual will be given the scope and the power that, that the leader of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, had been given. Putin simply not going to permit that. There's too much risk to his continued tenure. Uh, Mr. Secretary, the way we discussed it a couple days ago was, was that uh, Pergozin only had eight to ten thousand that were marching on on Moscow. He can't hope to take over Moscow with eight to ten thousand people, and maybe Putin was just waiting to see if any of his generals will jump in with them. <laughs> Does that sound? Uh, it's it's uh, plausible. It's absolutely plausible. 
I think Pergozin was waiting to see if any of those generals would jump in with him as well. I think he was hopeful that much like in times of the, the Romans, will the 10th Legion join me, right? Will, will we find some other general who thinks better to cast my lot with Pergozin than with Putin? And it turns out that he was marching to his own drummer. Yes, and, and, and people that know Putin now say that Pergozin, I don't know, is he a dead man walking? Oh, goodness. You know, um, I wouldn't insure his life, John, if I had to take that kind of risk. So, but, but hard to know how he'll play it in the medium run, but, or in the short run, but in the medium run. Um, Pergozin clearly took a chance. You know, I had a, had a fellow teach me when I was a young soldier decades ago, you know, Lieutenant, if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna take on the king, don't do it with a Nerf bat. And he did. It failed. And he is not likely to find grace from Vladimir Putin again. And whether that ends up with him, you know, drinking some bad tea or just permanently in exile, it, it's hard to know. Now, the other uh, statement I made, I said, I feel better with Putin being in charge than somebody else that might be worse. I mean, any gut feeling in that? Am I wrong? Well, make no mistake, John. Um, I think I sent out a note when this was still, when he was still on the march. I reminded everybody, there is not a good guy in the lot. Prigozhin is a, a thug. You you may remember, John, that back in, I think it was 2018, the Wagner Group in Syria, under the leadership of Prigozhin, began to threaten American soldiers. Uh, they were coming across the Euphrates River, and they are putting our guys and gals at risk. And so we killed 300 Wagner mercenaries that night, sending a message of deterrence to them. And so, no, Prigozhin's not, he, his, it's not like, gosh, I wish he'd have won and things will get better. Um, he was a thug. He's probably more even uh, a criminal than Vladimir Putin. And so this would, this would not have been a victory for the West uh, to see Prigozhin in charge. Uh, a victory for the West looks like a successful effort by the Ukrainians to maintain as much territory as they possibly can. Understood. Now, the other thing going on is, seems to be, and it started with Saudi Arabia, a loss of confidence in uh, dealing with with uh, Washington. Uh, Saudi Arabia has aligned themselves partially with so many other countries. And the other day, I heard that China uh, made a deal with uh, New Zealand. I mean, where did that come from? When you, you, this is this is National Security 101, when you demonstrate either weakness or incompetence, or in this case with the Biden administration, uh, a little bit of both, or maybe more than a little bit, your friends begin to doubt you, right? So the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who helped us so much build out the Abraham Accords, begins to sense that the United States is no no longer willing to do the things necessary to protect itself and to be a good partner and friend. And you start hedging your bets, and that's what you're seeing all across the world. Uh, the story of New Zealand, there were stories in the tiny little outposts in the Pacific Islands, but that matter a whole lot geostrategically. Certainly in the Middle East, they're watching. Watching Xi Jinping, who picked Putin in this conflict, and they're watching the United States that has not demonstrated resolve. And they saw the debacle in Afghanistan, and they said, goodness, this is a green light to put the pedal to the metal and try and create risk for America and see how far we can push before we meet steel. And that's a, a really precarious place for not only the United States, but for our friends and allies in Israel, for our European friends, for the Japanese and the South Koreans. All of our allies are counting on America to lead. And when we don't, we jeopardize those relationships and we put those countries in a really tough spot. Agreed. Taiwan is still number one. Secretary of State Blinken has visited China. I don't know what really happened, and I'm not sure the American people know what happened. But I was with a, a military guy the other day, and he jokingly or seriously, I don't know if he's joking or serious, saying, well, if the Chinese, we should send a signal. If the Chinese try to take Taiwan, we should take over Cuba and Venezuela and anything else in, in the Northern Hemisphere the same day. Is that crazy? 
That, that, it, it, it seems like, what's that, Dave? In case of emergency, break glass yeah. uh, theory. You know, we, what we instead should do, and, and, and look, we, we should absolutely protect uh, our geographic position in these South America, Venezuela, Cuba, Mexico, all of those, right? We have to make sure that these are friends and partners, not, not hosting the Chinese and the Iranians. That, that's certainly true. But the most important thing we can do is to demonstrate that the United States, when it draws a red line, it really means it, right? If, if we say, Hey, yep, we're going to be there to support the Taiwanese. We should do that now. We should do that today, not after they've been attacked or invaded or the political pressure gets so hot that they can't stand it and they politically capitulate. Probably the most likely outcome. That'd be really bad for the United States. And so today's the day to begin to help the Taiwanese prepare to defend themselves. Much as we waited too long to help the Ukrainians get ready, we, we shouldn't wait too long to help the Taiwanese do that. I'm, I'm convinced that if we do that, they'll, they'll do that. They'll make Xi Jinping think once, twice, three times before he begins to try to undermine the stability on the Taiwanese islands. Agree. The big picture. Sunday morning, all America is drinking their, uh, their cup of coffee. Where do you think we're going? Right now, it's not a shooting war. It's, I don't think it's a cold war. The new technology or new terminology, I've been saying it's an, a worldwide economic war because North America wants $65 oil. Russia, Saudi Arabia wants $90 oil. So it's definitely at least a worldwide economic war going on. Would you describe it in any other way? Oh, John, I've, I've talked about this much the same way. There is no doubt that the Chinese Communist Party has been at war economically with the United States 20, 25 years, and we just refused to acknowledge it. They grew their economy on the backs of the American worker. Uh, and that's the exact kind of war that you're describing, right? They stole our technology, they took our jobs, and they took the product and dumped it on the American market so that U.S. companies couldn't compete. That's the most important space in which we need to uh, continue to maintain. And, you know, as you're sitting there drinking your coffee on Sunday mornings, I'd urge everybody who's listening a couple things. First, uh, we ought to get it right around the world. But the most important thing we have to do is we've got to educate our children that this is a great nation. They need to love this country. We are not a racist nation. We're not the force for evil in the world. We're the force for good. And if we're teaching our kids that everybody's racist, we're going to think about groups, not individuals. If, if we're not going to teach them basic math and reading, we're going to do other things. Then, then all the stuff we've been talking about this morning, John, won't make a hill of beans difference. So hug your children. Make sure you know what they're learning in their schools. And if the teachers are teaching them garbage or filth, get in there and get after it and fix it. Make sure that the next generation loves our country the same way that you do, John. I agree. Uh, I think there's forces out there that are trying to change our way of life change our country. It happened to Venezuela in five short, in 20 short years. And we, we have to keep our eyes open. Fast. Nope, that's a good point. It can go fast. It can fall away faster than we think. And I'm praying and I'm, I'm confident that the American people will uh, rise up, uh, take care of our families, take care of our children and teach that next generation. And we'll get another 250 great years here in the United States, John. I agree. Secretary Pompeo, thank you so much, and happy Fourth of July long weekend, and God bless you, and God bless America. God bless you. Happy Fourth of July to everyone. So long, Thank God. you. Bye-bye. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 
Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Gotham City at Batman. New York City has the Catman. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Paul Stein. He is the chairman of SMR. And we'll find out what SMR is at Rolls-Royce. And everybody knows the Rolls-Royce name. He joined Rolls-Royce in 2010 as a chief scientific officer. And now he is running the SMR division. Paul, welcome to America. Welcome to New York. What is SMR? Well, first of all, John, I just say it's great to be here in the WABC studios here in New York. And uh, I'd love to explain to you what an SMR is. So an SMR is a small modular reactor. And basically, it's a small nuclear power station, which we need in quantity to help decarbonize the world. It's modular because all the parts of the power station are individually made in a factory, and the whole power station is bolted together on site. And that dramatically reduces the cost of nuclear power. Now, we talked about it before during our lunch, and this could come to America in the near future, maybe in the next uh, seven years, and it could transform one of the energies used in America to decarbonize over the next 20, 30 years. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, we're working really hard in the UK, where I come from, to build up a practical small modular reactor solution with the UK government, and we're now looking to export that technology technology around the world. And of course, the United States is one of the biggest markets in the world for low carbon energy. We're really hoping to build up quite a big activity here in the States with time and to contribute to a significant decarbonization of the energy grid and other industries here in the US. Now, this technology came many, many years ago. Tell us about the technology and how it's used in the last uh, 50 years. Well, nuclear power really was invented in the 1950s from great companies here in the US, like Westinghouse and also in the UK by government organisations. Initially, actually, nuclear energy was used to power submarines and the birth of nuclear energy can be traced back to the uh, US submarine fleet. But very rapidly, power stations were developed for civilian applications and we've kept to some pretty conservative designs since the 1950s. And the world has around about 300 nuclear power stations now operating and most of them are date all their technology back to that era. Understood. So we're talking about the new source for the 21st century where, you know, it will be a combination of all technologies. And I mean, I'm sure there are going to be some fossil fuels left. I'm sure there are going to be some wind uh, wind energy and some solar energy. Well, how do you view, if we can push the button and view uh, the year 2040 or 2050, how do you view things? Well, uh, we've got to crack on with decarbonizing the atmosphere. And that really involves weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels coal, gas and oil. And we use an awful lot of coal, gas and oil around the world right now. In fact, the global market for
for coal, gas and oil right now is $4 trillion. So it's a massive undertaking to decarbonize the whole energy system of the planet. So right now, wind and solar are dominating decarbonization with hydro, if you can get it, particularly up in Canada. But wind and solar uh, have their limitations and they have their limitations because sometimes the wind doesn't blow uh, and the sun doesn't shine. We do need wind and solar. I'm not knocking those at all because they're technologies that we have now and we need to deploy them at scale. And in the US, uh, we've done a great deal of wind energy. In fact, uh, the US has got quite a high fraction of its energy input coming from wind. However, when the wind doesn't blow, the costs of energy storage are pretty high. And that's really where nuclear power has to take over. Nuclear power provides a base load of energy. That means it runs all of the time. And right now, most of the nuclear power stations in the US are large nuclear power stations, which have been traditionally quite expensive. What SMR technology does is it reduces the cost of nuclear power down to something like the cost of wind, but it blows continuously. Understood. How do you see it? When, when do you think? Uh, you, do you have any experimental uh, ones in the United States now or thinking of them? Or, or I understand you might be building one in Great Britain. So, you know, the um, maturity of the technology, and this might surprise people, is that we don't actually build prototypes anymore uh, for these nuclear power stations. We produce a digital twin. So that means a simulation of a power station that runs in a computer. And that's now so close to the operation of the final final power station that the regulator is happy that's the um, the bodies the government bodies that have to approve these power stations they're happy to acknowledge the digital twin is a good representation we're hoping to get the first power on grid in the early 2030s and that really aligns not just with the Rolls-Royce solution but with some worthy competition here in the US so in the early 2030s we could have a system running a, a, a small city or a city uh, with uh, an SMR Yes, um, it doesn't quite work that way because uh, the U.S. has a grid uh, connecting all of the energy sources together in the U.S. And so SMR will start replacing coal-fired and gas-fired stations on the grid in the early 2030s. But SMRs have got some other tricks up their sleeve, which are quite interesting. You can couple an SMR to a big data center. And modern data centers that are being put into place by the big tech companies are now so big uh, that they need this, uh, a separate nuclear power station to run them of about the size of an SMR and also large chemical plants that might produce hydrogen or synthetic fuels to power our cars and our trucks and our aeroplanes can also be produced by SMRs. So there's many applications for them, not just decarbonizing electricity. Understood. Well, I want to thank you for stopping into WABC uh, today. And, and is there anything else you want to tell the American people? Well, I just want to say uh, thank you for the Inflation Reduction Act, American, uh, American government and American people, because we just need to crack on with de decarbonization and that really represents a brave move by the american government to help do this well paul stein i understand you've also been awarded in uh, great britain the commander of the order of, of the british empire that must be a, a highlight in your career it, absolutely it was an incredibly proud moment in fact our late queen queen elizabeth one of the last things she signed was what's called the grant order for my cb i'm very 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 proud of that well, thank you, and I look forward to continuous discussions on, on how we energize America and keep America going and keep the world going and uh, decarbonize over the next X amount of years. And with your help, I'll definitely do that, John. Thank you. God bless. With us today is Brian Fitzpatrick, a uh, American politician, a uh, attorney, and a former FBI agent, the only FBI agent to be a congressman. 
And now he's a member of the um, Ways and Means Committee, one of the most important ones. And he's from the Pennsylvania's first congressional district. Uh, welcome, uh, Brian. Good morning, John. How are you? Good. Now, you're the only FBI agent in uh, all of Congress. Tell us, uh, of all the things going on now, how long were you in the FBI? I was in uh, for 14 years. I started right here in New York City, made the best office uh, in the Bureau. We take a lot of pride in our the flagship office of the New York office here and uh, served here for several years and then uh, worked down at headquarters and then traveled uh, and was also assigned to Los Angeles, but traveled in the interim overseas to uh, uh, several overseas assignments, uh, including in Kiev. Ukraine, which was my last international summit. So you were in Kiev uh, while you were a member of the FBI uh, 14 years ago? Yes, sir. Wow. What do you think is going on there? I mean, do you trust? I personally don't trust any news I'm getting from anywhere. Right. What's your pulse of what's going on in Kiev? Well, obviously, the Ukrainians have put up an incredible fight. Um, I think there's a, a grand opportunity for them now as they're about to launch on their counteroffensive uh, at a time when there's incredible discord and disarray inside Russia itself uh, has been, you know, unfolded uh, recently uh, with the internal conflict. And I think that's a, a crack and a sign of, of the vulnerabilities of Vladimir Putin and his grip of power. Um, he was deemed to be untouchable. Uh, he ruled that country and has ruled it with an iron fist. But what we've seen recently uh, is there's a lot of infighting based on how they're prosecuting this war in Ukraine. A lot of internal division, and I think that bodes well for the Ukrainians in the West, and that's why I think it's incredibly important that we continue to support our Ukrainian allies, particularly now as they're embarking on this counteroffensive to uh, to get the job done, and I think they absolutely can get it done. Understood. Now, you're from Pennsylvania. What's going on in Pennsylvania? Lots going on in Pennsylvania. Uh, obviously, it's a swing state, so uh, a lot of eyes are always on our state, both in the midterms um, and the presidential election. We have essentially a split delegation in, in you know roughly the same number of Democrats and Republicans. I believe it's nine to eight right now, Democrats or Republican, uh, as far as the uh, the breakdown of the delegation. We have a very interesting Senate race coming up this year. Looks like it's going to be Dave McCormick uh, as a Republican nominee against incumbent Senator Bob Casey. So it's going to be an interesting cycle for sure, as every cycle is in Pennsylvania. Understood. What else would you like to talk about, Congressman? Well, you know, I'm on the, in addition to being on the Ways and Means Committee, I'm on the House Intelligence Committee, you know, and having been assigned uh, in Ukraine, we're keeping and have been keeping a very, very close watch on that situation. And again, stay tuned for further cracks in the Putin regime that are going to become much more apparent and much more public in the weeks and months to come. We're responsible for monitoring the um, Chinese influence, Milan Chinese influence, the CCP throughout the world, including the, the, the threat they pose to the United States. And, John, as you have mentioned, uh, I'm currently the only former FBI agent ser- currently serving in Congress. And uh, it's, it's come at a time when the FBI has been really under attack from a lot of different directions. And one of the roles that I played as a, a former agent and current member of Congress serving on the House Intelligence Committee is to, to, to be a bridge between disparate groups that are taking different perspectives on the Bureau. Um, certainly the Bureau has had several missteps. I think everyone needs to be honest and upfront and transparent about that, and they need to take steps to fix that. And on the other side of the coin, they've been subject to uh, many attacks that are flat out not true. What I've been able to do and share with my colleagues, I tell them what criticisms are legitimate, which ones are not, and how we can go about fixing it. Because the one thing that, regardless of the position people are taking on the FBI, the one thing I think, and I hope everyone agrees, is that our country needs a strong, healthy FBI to be safe and secure. It's the chief law enforcement organization in our country. They touch on both the criminal and the national security roles, the only agency really to do that to the extent that they do. And if the FBI is, is um, 
not being respected and is being deemed illegitimate in any way, that hurts the safety of all of us because FBI agents, uh, much like law enforcement across the board, they they rely on the cooperation of the public. And if the FBI is not getting that public cooperation because people don't trust them, that makes all of us less safe. So what I'm trying to do is build, uh, be that bridge in Congress between my former agency, the FBI, and my colleagues in Congress to make sure that my colleagues are getting the information that they need to conduct oversight. And at the same time, my colleagues know about the patterns and practices and, and sensitivities of FBI operations in terms of like keeping um, identities of sources um, confidential to protect their safety and their ongoing reporting and things like that. Well, what, what, what's been going on in the media is that, that the FBI is taking uh, extensive orders in Washington, especially from uh, the Department of Justice, which uh, may be a little bit on the political side. And that's the big criticism that I think has is, is been going on. Yeah, well, the FBI, I mean, even though they fall under the Department of Justice, they've always conducted themselves independent. Yes, they do, on, on the, especially on the criminal side, rely on the EOJ to prosecute their cases. FBI agents are law enforcement officers, are not prosecutors, so they need that cooperation to do that. But at the same time, you know, and this was certainly the case when I was an agent, you know, we pushed back against DOJ all the time. If we were being directed to do something that we thought was not consistent with the Constitution or not, not consistent with the best interests of the investigation that we were working, we would push back. Sometimes, you know, we, we would um, escalate it to the higher rankings or the higher levels uh, of the Bureau. So the agents need to do that. They need to remember that they, too, took an, a constitutional oath, everyone from the street-level agent all the way up to the director, and they need to, to, to make sure that they know that and the responsibility they have. That being said, you know, it's also important that Congress exercise our, our oversight role to make sure we're calling in members of the Bureau, members of the Department of Justice. Uh, hopefully they don't need to be subpoenaed. Hopefully they'll voluntarily come in on their own, and they answer our questions, including the point you just raised. Understood. Now, um, a couple of other items. Uh, AM radio. Yeah. AM radio has gotten a lot of publicity lately. Uh, some of the motor companies, uh, General Motors, Ford, <coughs> Mercedes, uh, want to get rid of AM radios. And uh, uh, FEMA is uh, was up the wall about it because AM radio reaches 97% of the American people and uh, 70 million people a uh, uh, a week, uh, or, or, you know. And um, nobody knows why exactly they wanted to do it. One issue was was that they, they want to be able to put it through the electronic system uh, and charge $9.99 a month. But AM radio, if there's a national emergency, it could be a security problem. Sure can. Uh, sure can. I served on Homeland Security. I'm on Intelligence Now and uh, the Intelligence Committee. Anybody who's advocating for such a scheme needs to think long and hard about it. National security is obviously the, the biggest risk, but oftentimes we've got to you know, peel the layers back on the onion and figure out what's motivating people behind doing that. AM radio has been a staple in American life for generations. It's uh, educated the public in ways that they otherwise would not get from other sources of information, and it needs to be protected. So we're going we're gonna to do our, our job on the legislative front. As you know, John, there's bipartisan legislation. I'm the, the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, we're the only bipartisan group in Congress. It's a one-to-one ratio. There are currently 32 Democrats, 32 Republicans. Myself and Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey are the co-chairs of that group, and it's the only bipartisan group, and we've weighed in on this issue. The caucus uh, members are, are co-sponsors of this bill, myself included, and we're going to make sure we protect AM radio. Brian Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for coming in today, and uh, uh, God bless you. And uh, you being a law enforcement person, I am glad you're in Congress and, and keeping your eyes open. And uh, Pennsylvania. 
Keep your eyes open. Make sure everybody gets an honest count. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Brian Fitzpatrick, 1st Congressional District in Pennsylvania, and uh, God bless America. Thanks, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. God bless the USA. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. This IRS whistleblower, he was a senior IRS supervisory agent, Gary Shapley, a long time, very well respected in the IRS. He has come forward saying that the investigation into Hunter Biden was hampered in so many ways and saw a lot of different suspicious things. And now his attorney is joining us here, Mark Lytle. Mark, thank you, first of all, for joining us. Your client, Gary Shapley, the IRS whistleblower, he's not in it alone. I saw also that someone who worked for him also is coming forward, and he's also naming names that in some of these meetings, there were at least six other people, credible people, were in these meetings, right? So he has backup. It's not just his claims. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on your show today. I'm really grateful for you to have me on, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Gary Shapley's a very heroic figure. He's a 14-year veteran of the uh, IRS criminal investigation section, and um, He's always done what he thought was right, and in this case, he saw things that are outside of the norm, preferential treatment, and he said he just couldn't live with himself if he said nothing, and so he's come forward, and we it's been my job to make sure he does it legally and under the law and in the right way, and he's been doing that. You know, Mark, a walk, about, walk us through some of the claims that he has made in terms of he said he was there during this conversation with the U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who is the U.S. Attorney in Delaware, basically saying that he wasn't the deciding factor. Also, he was aware that maybe there were tip-offs to searches. I mean, a lot of these things are really stunning, and it's important that the American public hears it. Yeah, I mean, there's really, there's really, I would just group these whistleblower complaints from Gary, and they're, they're, they're supported, I think, by a second whistleblower, too. But the, the biggest one, I think, was what Agent Shapley has described as his, his red line meeting. And that was a meeting that he described took place at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware on October 7, 2022. And it was the sort of the culmination of about a year's worth of work all of a sudden coming to a head at this big meeting uh, that involved uh, executives from the FBI, executives from the IRS, including Agent Shapley, and, um, and, and of course, U.S. Attorney David Weiss. And what happened at that meeting was, really have to describe leading up to the meeting, about six months earlier in March of 2022, U.S. Attorney Weiss had, had advised the agents and other prosecutors working on the case that they were going to try to pursue charges against Hunter Biden in the District of Columbia, because as Agent Shapley has testified, there's no venue uh, in Delaware for these crimes because Hunter Biden was living in D.C. part of the time and in California the other part of the time. But anyway, in March of 2022, they pursued bringing charges, felony and misdemeanor charges in the District of Columbia. And at that time, the District of Columbia, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, a Biden appointee, turned it down and said, we're not going to bring it. And they later made efforts to bring it up at, out in the U.S. attorney's office in L.A. for another part of the case. And that was later turned down. So but Agent Shapley really wasn't dismayed. He heard about these things being turned down, but he wasn't dismayed because he had heard Attorney General Garland's statements that U.S. Attorney Weiss has all the authority and, you know, has the authority to charge the case 
wherever, whenever he wants. And there shouldn't be a problem because of the Biden appointees at the Department of Justice. So Gary moves on and he comes to this meeting on October 7th, 2022. And this is where U.S. Attorney Weiss tells them that he was rebuffed by the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. He was rebuffed by the L.A. U.S. Attorney's Office. And they had still, they were still trying to get to the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. at that time. And he also drops this bomb. He says that he tells the agents, the executive staff there, that he sought special counsel status and he was denied special counsel status by the Department of Justice. And Agent Shapley shared that that was a shocker to him. He couldn't believe it because he always thought uh, he believed Attorney General Garland saying that Weiss had the authority to do this. And so when Weiss said he does not have the authority to charge those cases, it was a shocker for him. And it led him to go through a lot of, you know, uh, challenges of his conscience and what he should do. And even he was so shocked by it, he actually questioned him twice. You know, I had him repeat it. So, you know, there's a lot of questions about who to believe. There's statements by the attorney general. There's statements by Weiss out there saying they always had, you know, unfettered authority. And then you've got Agent Shapley's statement. But he, he wrote it up contemporaneously when he was at that meeting. He wrote it up. Wow. Well, thank he put you. it in an email. Thank you so much for letting us know what's going on. Yeah, you got to come back on. People, the American people want the truth and they want to know what the heck is going on. And thank you for uh, pursuing that truth. And, uh, and when you have updates, please text us. Let us know. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on. Folks. You Thank too. You. Thank you. With us today is Congressman Jason Smith, the chairman of the Ways Means Committee in Congress, the most powerful uh, congressional committee. Nothing could happen without the Ways and Means Committee approving it. Congressman Smith, uh, welcome to the uh, Cats Roundtable. Welcome to WABC. There's so many things happening in Washington, so many people worried about the truth and what's really going on. What can you tell us this Sunday morning, this 4th of July uh, morning? It's great to be with you, um, as always. You know, people are very concerned. The politicization and the misconduct at the Department of Justice and the IRS during the investigation into Hunter Biden, it it reveals a two-tiered system of justice and unequal application of, of the law. And according to these whistleblowers that came to my committee and through depositions, they, they claimed the Justice Department um, has refused to follow evidence that implicated Joe Biden, tipped off Hunter Biden's attorneys. It, uh, it allowed the clock to expire in the statute of limitations for tax fraud charges for 2014 and 2015. And it put tax cheat Hunter Biden on the path towards a sweetheart plea deal. That's the kind of stuff we've been dealing with. That's virtually what we exposed with the, the whistleblower testimony last week. And um, it's leading to investigations, actually. Uh, understood. Now, uh, these whistleblowers, are we going to be able to get proof one way or another that these things actually occurred uh, versus uh, just uh, somebody saying it? You know, that's exactly why just today, myself, Jim Jordan and Jamie Comer sent a letter to the Justice Department, to the FBI and to the IRS requesting in-person interviews of a dozen um, a handful of, of their employees. And these are people that were all mentioned by the whistleblowers as people that were there. And um, we're going to we're going to see if their facts add up to the whistleblower's facts. Uh, understood. Uh, I mean, uh, we had uh, uh, the other day in our uh, studio, we had uh, Congressman uh, 
Jim uh, Cohen, and he's investigating similar uh, objects. What is the difference in the investigation in the Ways and Means Committee versus his committee? Well, all three of us is part of this letter where we're asking for these investigations. In Jamie's committee, they're only going to be interviewing the FBI employees. And Jim Jordan's are going to be interviewing the Department of Justice employees. And in our committee, you're going to be interviewing any IRS investigator or employee. The interesting part with all the information that we released last week that included the WhatsApp message that has gotten a lot of attention that Hunter Biden sent to a Chinese business uh, partner. The items of showing how the Justice Department has delayed, divulged, and denied IRS whistleblower investigators throughout the process. The only reason why this information was able to be released is as Ways and Means Chairman, under a statute called 6103, we're able to get confidential taxpayer information. And the only way that these IRS whistleblowers were able to speak to anyone, to me and my team under 6103, and that is where they they released this information, they documented this information, and that's why last week we had to vote to make it public so Jamie Comer and Jim Jordan could actually have the material that we did. They knew nothing about this until we released it on Thursday. Understood. Now, question. Can't we give, I mean, somebody in the FBI has to be able to tell the truth. Uh, I mean, one of the discussions were uh, some people were were afraid that uh, Christopher Ray didn't really know what was going on and other people in the FBI were doing it. I mean, do we know the truth? I mean, there's got to be honest people at the FBI. I believe that is honest people there. Can't, can't somebody stand up and say this is what's going on? You know, it's just like any business. Um, it's the same way with people who I serve with in Congress. There's good apples and there's bad apples. You have that with the FBI. You have that with the Justice Department. You have good apples and you have bad apples. It just happens to be the bad apples, the ones that are, are the ones you're seeing a lot of attention to. But we have to get down to the bottom of it, find out this information. And that's why these are steps along the way. Imagine None of this information would have ever been able to come forward if the House Republicans didn't win the majority in January. And this information has been taking some time for us to get. You know, my first week as chairman, John, my first week as chairman, I set up this whistleblower hotline for any employee of the IRS to let me know as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee who has oversight over the IRS if there's something that we should look at and look at all these whistleblowers that came forward. They never had that opportunity before then. Understood. The Department of Justice, there's got to be some old timers there that want to tell the truth. The same thing as the FBI. So, I mean, my recommend, you're the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. I think that offering maybe immunity to to, or for whistleblower status at the FBI and the Department of Justice because the only thing the American people want is the truth, and that's what we really want. We've got a minute left. What would you like to talk about? You know, the American people deserve the truth, John, and that's why we have to continue to fight to get this information to make sure that we deliver the factual, correct information and anything that's been trying to be hidden, we need to make that to have some sunshine. Understood. Congressman, Chairman uh, Smith of the Ways and Means Committee, thank you, and God bless America, and happy Fourth of July weekend. Happy Fourth of July, and it's great to be with you, my friend. Thank you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. 
You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers interviewed by New York's first citizen. It's the Cats Roundtable. And, of course, he is definitely the man of the hour and certainly with us, the great chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman James Comer, joining us. From Kentucky. Thrilled to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Where are you in the investigation into Hunter Biden and, of course, his father? Well, we've been very transparent with the American people about the bank records that we found. We found 19 shell companies that the Bidens had. The sole purpose of those shell companies appeared to be to launder money from foreign nationals to at least nine different Biden family members. Now, in the last five days, we've gotten more bank statements in from more banks. Uh, When we had access to the suspicious activity reports at Treasury, we found more bank accounts, more shell companies, and more Bidens. So uh, we're going to continue to pour through these bank statements and work to try to uh, determine how much money the Bidens took and what role Joe Biden played in all of this. How much of a maze is it, Congressman James Comer? Because we've been hearing all these different shell companies. How many different banks? How many companies have you discovered? How much of a puzzle is it? Uh, It's a huge puzzle. This was organized crime. There's no other way to define it. This was organized crime. And what they did, uh, and you saw it in the FBI Form 1023, where the Ukrainian oligarch said that no one would ever be able to figure out all these wires they were sending to the Biden because they were using so many different banks and shell companies. This was something that I would say is going to top out around 30 to 40 different banks and about that many different shell companies. So so this is a, an organized attempt by the Biden family to hide the source of money flowing into these shell companies and to distract from the IRS so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. And that's exactly what the IRS whistleblowers allege in the transcribed interview with the Ways and Means Committee that the Biden family never paid money on any of these wires that came into these shell companies. Congressman, I'm not worried about the wires. I'm not worried about the taxes. What I'm worried about is, you know, what's going on in our country. Right. Are the favors they got in cash, are they paying it back in some way? I fear that they are, uh, and that's what we're looking at. Uh, we have six specific policy decisions, four of which were made while Joe Biden was president uh, early on, that we can't come to any other conclusion as to why these decisions were made other than the fact that this president is compromised. This family's taken too much money from the Chinese Communist Party not to completely join the majority of Americans in trying to oppose the Chinese Communist Party's attempt to take over certain industries in America. So we're going to continue to be transparent with the American people about what we found with respect to potential wrongdoing by this administration through the fact that they're compromised. That's that's what I'm worried about, that they're compromised and they're doing favors for other countries because the amount of money flowing in from other countries one way or another Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it in many ways. Foreign money is being flown in or going into Washington right. in many, many ways. It could be done by somebody that used to be a citizen of that foreign country mm-hmm. and now is a U.S. citizen. But right. money is flowing. Rita? Yeah. Yeah, real quick, uh, I have a question for you about the audio tapes. Remember, this to me is really huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, This came out that uh, the Burisma guy, apparently there's an audio tape, 15 conversations with Hunter Biden, basically pay for play is the allegation from a credible informant, and also two conversations with this Burisma executive and the big guy and the the president. What do we know about these tapes? Do they exist? Do the people exist, Congressman? We know the people exist. We believe that we're going to be able to find 
find money that mysteriously was transferred into Hunter Biden's account because we believe all of his money wires were were domestically made. We know that these two, that, that the oligarch is alive. We think he's alive in Europe. We know his daughter's alive. We have been told from credible sources that both the uh, the father and the daughter have tapes. But this is the most important thing, and this is what irritates Chuck Grassley. The FBI never investigated it. You want to ask a question, does the FBI have the tapes? No, they do not, and here's why. They never investigated it. When they were told this, they just stuck their fingers in their ears and said, oh, we don't want to hear it. Move on. Let's talk about something else. I can't believe that. Well, Congressman, we got so much more to talk about, but I know you're out of time, and we want to thank you for coming to WABC Studios today. Thank you for everything you do. And you know something? The American people, all they want to know is the truth. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to provide. Thank you. Happy Fourth of July weekend. With us today is our in-house genius, Dr. Peter Michalos. Uh, a genius in many, many aspects in, in medicine and history and so in science. Uh, Dr. Peter Mihalos, what are you doing this 4th of July weekend? I'm singing happy birthday to America and God bless America, this wonderful, great country that we live in and just appreciate our freedom and always remembering that freedom isn't free and thanking all our servicemen, law enforcement and everyone else who keeps us safe every day. And today we're going to talk about an interesting topic and we're going to talk about how our technology sometimes doesn't catch up to our own biology. And what do I mean by that? So we're going to go back into history. We're going to start for an example. In 1903, the Nobel Prize in medicine was for UVC light, and everybody thought, oh, how great. It can kill bacterial infections. We're going to be able to kill skin infections. Before antibiotic, when someone had sepsis or an infection in their blood, they used to drain your blood out of a vein, put it in a jar in a dark box, zap it with UVC, kill the infection, and put it back in another vein. And that was called extracorporeal UVC sanitization of the blood, which just means filtering the blood with UVC light. But years later, they found out that UVC causes skin cancer and squamous cell cancer and DNA damage and melanomas. So that's one example where the technology was ahead of our biology. The other example is when x-rays came out. Oh, how great. They used it to treat acne until they figured out it caused thyroid cancer. That's why you used to get and you still get that metal lead shield put around your neck when you're getting x-rays at the dentist's office sometimes or other x-rays. And then we move ahead again into the future and we see that technology, for example, in the food industry. We've learned about some of the artificial sweeteners and how they cause dysbiosis. What's that? The the intestinal gut gets confused because it has these fake sugars and it doesn't know what to do with them and it disrupts the whole immune system and gut system. And now there's an association with some of these artificial sweeteners with cancer and they're going to start labeling additional ones now that potential carcinogenic. So this is an example how our technology is ahead of our biology. We wanted food to last longer instead of having fresh food. So we started putting preservatives in food. Preservatives block bacteria from growing in the food so it doesn't rot. But guess what? Those same preservatives are also killing good bacteria in our intestine. And we now know 80% of our immune system is our intestine. Another example of how our food technology was way ahead of our biology. And we're learning more and more about the human body and how it functions. And then we also have a lot of unanswered questions, in my opinion, on things like electric cars. 
sometimes we're moving ahead with the technology and everyone wants to have these electric cars, but we don't have a grid that can handle it. We don't talk about the millions and millions of tons of water just to mine a little bit of cobalt and lithium in some of these mines around the world. And we're finding out that we're pumping water out of the earth to do all this mining to make electric batteries. And the recent interesting literature that the earth spins like one of those toy tops and punching these trillions of gallons of water out of the earth is causing a disruption in the way the earth spins in the axis. And that can affect us in many ways because we depend on the way the earth spins. And that's what creates the geomagnetic or magnetic force field. Like on Star Trek, you have a force field around the ship. We have a force field of a magnetic field around the earth that protects us from incoming solar radiation. And we talked about on WABC that if you were born during a year where there's a lot of solar flare activity, or you were in gestation during that period, you can die up to five years faster than the rest of the population. And this is well documented, looking at like a million uh, chart records of people and when they were born. So all these things interact with each other and how we have to, you know, respect the earth and be good stewards of the earth and how our technology is ahead. The EMF inside an electric car, it's like a reverse Faraday cage. And in my opinion, you have four electric motors, you know, why AM radios have trouble working in electric cars is because of those uh, EMF fields coming out of these electric motors and they cause that. What's that EMF doing to our bodies? We don't fully understand and nobody's really spending a lot of money trying to research this and find out. You see all these young people with these high frequency little earbuds as we heard from Professor John Howard from uh, New Jersey of Electromagnetic Technologies who studies this stuff and has a grave concern and thinks that there should be warning labels on some of these things because our technology sometimes is ahead of our biology and what we're going to hear in the next few years, we don't really know what you know the answer is. And of course, there's always lobbyists and conflicts of interest. And then, but eventually, the truth will always come out. And that's why we always like to get the truth out on ABC and keep people thinking and keep their minds open about how our technology is sometimes ahead of our biology, and we have to just now you know, uh, really. Dr. Peter, uh, we we talked about uh, aspartame was dangerous, uh, came out a few weeks ago, and and now uh, saccharin uh, this week. And there's friends of mine, they walk around and say, uh, oh, this one, they're guaranteed it's natural, it's okay. Is there any natural sugar that's okay? But sugar in general is not good. Tell us what you know. Yeah, well, well, if you look at the glycemic index, of different things, you'll find that something, for example, like agave nectar, which is a natural substance, agave nectar happens to have a very, very low glycemic index. So if you look, if you look at some of the other things that are uh, utilized in our food products, for example, high fructose corn syrup has a very, very, very high glycemic index. So it's important to study. For example, white sugar has a, a glycemic index of 68 out of 100. Corn syrup, 90. Agave nectar, only 10. Honey, for example, is only 55. Maple syrup is only 54. And molasses so, is a so the worst of one is the 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 worst one was corn syrup. Corn yeah, syrup, which 90. they've been putting in our food because it's been cheaper. 
and they've been killing people. Right, right. But you can actually you can actually find, for example, there are ketchups, organic ketchups they call them, that are made with just regular sugar. You can find them. I would in this country because we have a problem with obesity, visceral fat, metabolic syndrome. Basically, that belly fat has a mind of its own, and it causes havoc, high blood pressure, cholesterol problems, diabetes. And that is fed directly by the high fructose corn syrup. Because when your body sees that, it says, I don't need to go after the fat cells and try to break it down. That's why our intermittent fasting works so well, because after about 12 to 14 hours, our body doesn't have any high fructose corn syrup or a lot of sugar around or doesn't see insulin. Then it starts saying, you know what, I'm going to start breaking down some of that fat and converting it into ketones and energy to feed our brain and get through the day. And that's how that works and that mechanism. So those are the glycemic indexes that people have to really watch out for. But agave nectar, natural agave nectar, has a very low glycemic index. It's quite sweet. I put it in my chamomile tea. I put it in my green tea. And it tastes great. So that's an alternative for people, but they need the knowledge. And that's why they have to listen to WABC to learn these things, because we do a deep dive and try to find out the truth and get it out to the people. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Peter Mihalos, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Have a great 4th of July weekend, and we'll catch up again real soon. Thanks, John, for always getting the truth out, and happy birthday, America. Thank you for listening to the Catch Roundtable every Sunday morning. We'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday.